So welcome back to She Writes with Clarence Catherine, presented by Ladybug Dreams and Color Medium. So I have been on this tangent for the last couple of episodes. And anyone who knows me and knows me well knows how I feel about children, knows how I feel about students, knows how I feel about people speaking ill of or mistreating children. And a lot of that ties directly back to my own childhood and how I was treated by adults, not necessarily in school, but by family. Um, How I got caught up in what I like to think of as grown folks mess and how as a child, no one paused to think how this was impacting me. So today I am going to share an extremely personal story from my childhood and I have changed the names of everyone involved except for my parents who were Clarence and Catherine as you can see from the name of this podcast um, two individuals two deeply wounded souls who never got the opportunity in this time and space to see their healing but I am grateful every day for them So today, I'm going to share a little bit from my childhood, and this episode is titled, Daddy's Girls. My mom and dad came from seemingly two completely different worlds. My mom grew up in a family of 10 with four brothers and three sisters. Her dad was a World War II vet, and her mom was a housewife. My dad also grew up in a family of 10. His oldest brother was stillborn. And his six older sisters that followed his brother always knew that their very existence rested on the fact that their parents were trying for another boy. My dad's dad was also a World War II vet and his mom a housewife. Both of my parents' fathers left the home, essentially abandoning their families for a while. The only difference was my dad's dad returned to the home shortly after and it would be 20 plus years before my mom saw her dad again my dad came from what i would consider a middle class family not only was his dad in the army but he also retired from the railroad he put all of his girls through college the two oldest girls attended the same hbcu and became educators the third oldest girl she also became an educator There were a set of twins. They too went to HBCUs. One became an educator. The other became a pediatrician. And the youngest girl, she was the only one to graduate from a predominantly white college. She did it as an act of rebellion. She applied and to everyone's surprise, she got in and she became a nurse. Each of the girls also married well. My Aunt Eve married a businessman and they opened the first black owned daycare in our city. Letty married a minister, and she became uh, a first lady. Pinky married a cardiologist, and as I mentioned, she was also a pediatrician. And then Peggy, who was an educator, she married an OBGYN. And Diane, the nurse, she married an ER doctor. The oldest girl, who I will refer to as Rose, never married and was often looked at differently because of it. On paper, they all live seemingly beautiful, black, excellent lives. 
But if you look close enough, you will see the cracks were always there. With the girls doing well in life, you would think that my dad being the only surviving son and the youngest of the family would lead a similar life. But nothing could have been farthest from the truth. Part of me struggled when I was writing this chapter because in actuality, there is very little I actually know about my father and the parts that I remember, the parts that were not told to me by someone else, but I actually vividly remember are not all that great. What I remember most about my dad was the violence and brutality that he showed towards my mom. My earliest memories of my dad are images of me and my mom running down the steps in our apartment as she was trying to get away from him. Once my mom made it to the front door, she would release my hand and she would take off running through the housing projects that we lived in. My dad would chase after her, sometimes with a belt in his hand. As my mom tried desperately to make it to either one of her friend's apartments who lived in the same housing projects or to one of her older sisters, Leah. Her job was at a mental institution that was directly behind the housing projects that we lived in. The entire time during this chase, remember I am left alone on the steps and this was in the 80s at the height of the crack era. So I was no more than three years old, standing in the dark, crying in the middle of the night, waiting on someone to come get me. Eventually, my dad would come back and we would head to his parents' house. He lived with his parents up until his eventual death, and he lived with them in their basements. Other memories are images of me waking up in the middle of the night and asking my dad, what was he doing? as he threw my mom's clothes out of her bedroom window or of him in the back of a police car because he had jumped on my mom as well as on a neighbor and was now being arrested. There are also memories of my mom and I going to pick up my dad from one of the local motels and his entire forehead is seemingly cut out, like literally missing because he had gotten into a fight earlier that night where someone had cut him across the face with a bottle. I am told that it was my dad's older sister, Eve, who actually got him addicted to alcohol, which seems to be about right because I have memories of her at my cousin's games sitting courtside with a styrofoam double cup. And this was long before Wheezy F Baby was double cupping it on courtsides for the NBA. So stick a pen in this aunt for now because I'm going to come back to her later. So as I mentioned, I said Eve and her husband opened the first Black-owned daycare in our city. My dad was also a bus driver for this daycare. And I'm sure you can kind of guess where this story is going, but I'll share it anyway. One day, my dad was drunk and maybe high too and was driving a bunch of kids on a daycare school bus when all of a sudden he got into an accident and flipped the bus over, injuring many of the children, very small children that were on the bus. My dad fled the scene, and my Aunt Leah told me years later that when they finally found my dad days later, he was still wearing the same bloody clothes from the accident. 
But in spite of all of this, I was a daddy's girl and wanted nothing more than to be near him. The few good memories I have of my dad and I are of him teaching me how to ride my bike or of him holding me close when we slept together at night. He would hold me so tight that it would be hard to fall asleep because he would be breathing directly in my face. And remember I said he lived in his parents' basement, but this wasn't a finished basement. There was only a curtain separating the bed that we slept in from the car that was parked in the garage. So I would bury my face in my dad's chest at night to block out the images of the darkness from the garage. Another sweet memory of my dad is the first time I heard Michael Jackson's Thriller on the radio. The opening chord sounded like monsters were coming through the radio and I screamed and ran into the bathroom where my dad was sitting on the toilet to get away from the monsters. But my fondest memory of him is me sitting on the living room floor at my Aunt Claire's apartment and realizing my dad is walking down the hill toward her home. And I burst out of the front door, running up the hill towards my dad and jumping into his arms as he lifts me high and carries me safely back down the hill. These are the memories that still make me smile, the memories that I never want to forget. Instead, it is my last memory of him that still brings me to tears. It was one summer evening in August. My cousins, Kay and Portia, who are my Aunt Leah's daughters, were spending the weekend with me when my oldest cousin, Kay, became sick. I don't remember if it was a virus or food poisoning, but I remember we had to cut our visit short to take her and her sister Portia back home. Kay was four, four years older than Portia, and they had different dads. In fact, Portia's dad, Paul, was a very close friend to my dad. They were thick as thieves, and they were known as the Georgia Road Pimps. Similar to my dad, Paul was also an addict, but he was addicted to heroin and was constantly in and out of trouble. He even did a stint in prison for a while. And also similar to my dad, Paul's mom was quick to bail him out of trouble. So when we took Kay and Portia home, we found my Aunt Leah. She was home alone. Paul, her boyfriend, and also her baby daddy was out in the streets, which was no surprise to my mom. So we stayed for a while so my mom could smoke a joint with her sister and have a beer. Kay, my cousin, went to her bedroom because, again, she wasn't feeling well, and she got in the bed. And Portia and I, we sat on the dining room floor playing with our neon color bracelets and watching TV. When all of a sudden we heard a knock at the door. It was my dad. He had been walking by and saw my mom's car and decided to stop. I was so excited to see him. And when he came in, he picked me up and played with me for a while. And he kept telling me to give him five on the black hand side. But I didn't know what that meant because I was five. And so I kept trying but after playing with me for a while, he sat me back on the floor and he proceeded to join my mom and my Aunt Leah at the dining room table. Some time passed. Again, I was five, so I'm not sure how much time passed. But sometime later, Paul came home. And when he saw my dad sitting at the dining room table, he yelled at him. He said, fuck nigga, what you doing here? And my dad proceeded to answer him because I want to be here, fuck nigga. 
I don't ever recall my dad and Paul ever arguing before, but unfortunately, violence was a constant companion throughout my childhood, and this night was no different. My dad proceeded to get up from the table, and within seconds, Paul and my dad were fighting. Portia and I were crying and screaming because our dads were fighting, and this awakened Kay, my cousin, who were in, was in the back bedroom. Startled from the commotion, she ran to the kitchen and grabbed a knife. And my mom was able to grab the knife from Kay just in time and take it away from her. But in the midst of all this chaos, no one noticed when Paul pulled a pocket knife out and stabbed my dad in the chest. And my last image of my dad was of him staggering out of the house. That would be the last time that I saw my dad dead or alive. That night was a chaotic and emotional roller coaster for my entire family and community. After my dad staggered out of the house, Paul ran out of the house and to his mom's house that lived directly behind my Aunt Leah's home. And my Aunt Leah ran after Paul. Eventually, my mom left as well to check on my dad, which left myself and my two cousins in the house alone. I'm not sure what was happening outside, but within a blink of an eye, my Aunt Leah's home was filled with my mom's sisters and every woman imaginable from the neighborhood. I was sitting in my Aunt Lily's lap, who was married to one of my mom's younger brothers, when the phone rang. My Aunt Leah answered the phone and announced to everyone in the room that that was Kat. She just called to let us know Clarence passed away. And I can remember screaming to the top of my lungs and my Aunt Lily trying her best to console me, but I was inconsolable. Eventually, everyone left and my cousins and I were made to go to bed. On their way home from the hospital, I'm assuming, my dad's parents stopped by my Aunt Leah's home, I'm guessing to ask what happened. My cousins and I, I can remember us hiding in the hallway trying to hear what was being said. And I could get, catch glimpses of my grandparents sitting on my aunt's sofa looking lifeless and listening to her explain what happened. Midway through the conversation, my Aunt Leah re realized we were standing in the hall and yelled at us to get back in the bed. Mind you, we were three very small children. Again, I was five, my cousin Portia was six, and my cousin Kay was 10 years old, who had just witnessed one of the most horrific moments of our young lives. And more than anything, I was longing for my grandmother's touch. But that night would prove to be a precursor to the years ahead for me. My dad's funeral was held the, held the following week. And the day of the funeral, I can remember being out with my mom and her oldest sister, Claire, as they looked for a dress for me to wear for the funeral. As I can imagine, as anyone can imagine, emotions were high with one sister's baby daddy killing the other sister's baby daddy and the oldest sister feeling caught in the middle. 
And at some point during that shopping trip, I can remember my mom and my Aunt Claire getting into an argument. I think my Aunt Claire was supposed to go with us at a funeral, but I can just remember my mom taking Aunt Claire back home and dropping her off. My mom and I were so late to my dad's funeral that the casket was already closed. And we didn't sit with my dad's family. Instead, we sat on the opposite end of the church. Paul did go to jail the night of the murder, but one of his uncles had a high-ranking position within the police force. And I don't think he spent more than 24 hours in jail. Plus, his mom, Miss Willie, was a bootlegger who sold shots of whiskey, was able to hire a really good attorney for Paul and bail him out of jail. During the trial, my mom and one of her close friends took me to a park because I was supposed to testify during the trial. So they took me there to prep for trial. They asked me questions in ways that my five-year-old brain could understand, and I answered as best I could. And I can remember at some point during the trial prep, I told my mom that I didn't want to testify. And thankfully, she didn't make me. The trial went on, and Paul was found not guilty. And although I'm not sure of his defense, because I never um, attended any of the court proceedings, but with my dad's arrest records, as well as the significant size difference between my dad and Paul, to put it in context, picture Shaq, which would be my dad, and Kobe, which would be Paul. Just two drastically different body types and sizes. And I'm sure a case was probably made that my dad was the aggressor and Paul had to defend himself in his own home. So he was found not guilty and things went on as close to normal as possible. I would like to tell you that I never saw Paul again or that when I did see Paul, it was always a very awkward exchange, but that would be a lie. I saw Paul almost every weekend because he and my Aunt Leah remained together for years afterwards. Even after Paul and his other woman shot up my Aunt Leah's house, yeah, you heard me correctly. He, like I said, violence was a constant companion in our family growing up. And one night, my aunt and Paul got into it. He went and got his other woman and they came back and shot up the house. Mind you, this was the same house that his child lived in, as well as his stepchild that he considered his own, as well as my elderly granddad who had come back to the family at this point. Even to this day, my Aunt Leah would, tell, would still tell you that Paul was the love of her life, that she never loved a man the way that she loved him. Recently, my Aunt Leah told me that my mom could not stand Paul and that they argued constantly, which was news to me because I never saw this growing up. When I asked her why my mom couldn't stand Paul, my Aunt Leah said it was not because he had killed my dad, because, but it was because my mom hated the way he treated her sister. After the funeral, after my dad's funeral, my mom maintained the same weekly routine 
that we had always followed prior to my dad's murder, which was dropping me off at my family's daycare on Friday evenings. And she would pick me up from my grandparents' homes on Sunday nights. But that's not to say that things remain consistent in my life. In actuality, it was anything but consistent. Prior to my dad's death, my mom had begun to move on from him with my sibling's dad. So two months after my dad's death, my mom was pregnant with one of my younger siblings. My life was rapidly changing. I went from graduating daycare and being my mom's only child to nine months later, not having a dad and now having a younger sibling. One Friday afternoon, my mom dropped me off at the daycare and I was having a blast. I was running around with my cousins and the other kids at the daycare. When my dad's sister, Eve, walked in, she wasn't there when my mom dropped me off. And she was visibly upset and asked people who worked there, who worked for her, what she's doing here. And the she that she was referring to was me. I don't remember their responses, but the next thing I do remember was standing on the steps of the daycare in the dark crying. Thankfully, two women who worked for my Aunt E stood with me. And I can remember one of them saying, you don't do this to a child. When my mom got there that night, there wasn't anything anyone to say to her to calm her down. Eve tried to hide in her office. And although she was a few inches taller than my mom and had about a good 50 pounds on my mom. And keep in mind, my mom was six months pregnant with my sibling. My Aunt Eve's Still was no match for my mom. She tried her best to hold on to her desk to keep my mom from getting to her, but my mom dragged her up out of the about hair and commenced to kicking ass. And E being the coward that she was, she kicked my mom in the stomach in the stomach in an attempt to get my mom up off of her. The fight was eventually broken up, but the damage was already done. My last images of that night and of the daycare was of my mom standing, talking to my dad's dad while holding a brick in her hand as police lights flashed around us. My mom was telling him how I was never coming back, and she meant just that. Fast forward to about four years later, I was at my Aunt Claire's apartment playing outside with my friends when one of them told me that her mom wanted to talk to me. Her mom was actually one of the ladies who stood outside of the daycare with me that night when my mom, when my Aunt E put me out. And my friend told me to follow her home. I didn't know what was going on, but when I followed my friend Winter to her mom's apartment, her mom proceeded to tell me that my Aunt E's husband had been killed in a car accident. Later that evening, when my mom came to pick me up, I was barely in the car before I began to share with her what I had just learned. And I informed my mom, didn't even ask. I can remember telling my mom, I want to go to the funeral. And thankfully, my mom allowed me to go. 
when I got home that night, I called one of my dad's sisters. Mind you, I haven't spoken to any of them or seen them since that night that my aunt put me out of the daycare. But I still remember some of their numbers by heart. And I called one of her sisters and asked if I could ride with her to the funeral. At the end of the week, I attended the funeral and received some much needed love from my dad's side of the family. During the repast later on that afternoon at the church, I saw my Aunt Eve sitting alone with her daughter and I walked up to her and gave her a hug. And it was not lost on me that I was able to give her the one thing that she had denied me. If you are wondering how long ago that was, that has been over 36 years ago. And my Aunt Eve passed away a year ago, exactly a year ago. And if you're wondering if she ever was remorseful for her actions or ever apologized to me for putting me out, here is your answer. Several years ago, I was talking to her daughter-in-law, one of her son's wife, and she was telling me, unbeknownst to her, that my aunt had bragged to her of how she had fought a pregnant woman to prove how she wasn't the one to be fucked with. <laughs> and I had to share with her the pregnant woman that she was referring to was my mom, as well as had to explain to her why my mom had to whoop her ass. that is today's episode. It's definitely much longer than my previously shared episodes. Um, this one definitely was difficult to get through this week. Um, but I hopefully gives you a little bit of insight as to why I am such an advocate for children, why I am such an advocate for children's well-being, for their mental health, and for just overall, just the love and care of ch for children. Um, you would think family, as well as educators, because <laughs> it's not lost on me as well that my aunt was also an educator. Um, what I didn't share in the story was sometime after her husband's um, unfortunate transition, she eventually lost a daycare and she had to go back into the public school system as an educator. And so she was a lifelong educator. And you would think educators and family would be safe spaces for children, but not that's not always the case. And so whenever you hear me get on my platform and just go on a tangent about children being mistreated or schools supposed to be safe and inclusive environments. This is why. And is why I am always careful in how I treat children. Because that exact same aunt eventually had to leave the profession because one of her students started to poison her. So just know what you do unto others 
it always comes back to you. Remember to join me on social media, on IG at Ladybug Dreams and Color Media, as well as on TikTok at Ladybug is Dreaming. I'll see you there.